This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. It is time for episode number 144 of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn, and today is the 23rd of March, 2023. 32323. Got a couple of quick but important things to tell you to kick off this week. One is to let you know about the upcoming Best Friends National Week for Animals. If you've not heard of this before, there's a really good reason for that. It's because it's our very first one. As we know, policy can play a big role in this work. Good ordinances and laws, they can help us. But boy, the bad ones, can they really block life-saving or what? So, it's incredibly important that we all learn how to communicate with policymakers. Starting on Monday, April 17th, there will be a whole week of virtual sessions to help you become more proficient in this area. Our experts will help you understand who to talk to and how to talk to them. You know, what talking points and materials are going to help that local commissioner understand the value of a community cat program? the right information in the way they need to hear it. So that week of activities, it all culminates in a day of action on that Friday when we will all take action and speak up for pets directly to the people who can pass common sense laws that enable life-saving efforts. We've got a link in the show notes area on your podcast player of choice where you can go to learn more about this National Week for the Animals and register so you are ready to go next month. Now, the other thing I want to do is say hello to Monica down in Texas. She's a newer listener to the podcast and someone she's newer in animal welfare in her role as a shelter leader. She emailed to let us know she was tuning in and looking for more information on working with elected officials. So Monica and all of you, definitely make sure you go to the website bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click on the link for episode 144. That is where you will find a link to the National Week for Animals information. And we'll also have a link where you can register for an up coming webinar series, all centered around policy, advocacy, grassroots efforts for animal welfare organizations. These are virtual and they're pre-recorded sessions. We're going to send directly to you in two parts so you can more easily watch them. They're broken down into small segments so you can watch the sessions that you need the most so you're not wasting time. We know you don't have a lot of it. And once these are all out, we're going to have a live virtual panel. That will be your opportunity to speak directly with the Best Friends experts, get your questions answered, and learn about how you can receive one of five grants of $1,000 each. You do need to register for this, which you can do on our website. Again, link in the show notes or on our website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And the website is where you will also find more information about today's topic. You can read a companion piece penned by my colleague Liz Finch that goes into more detail about the updates to the Association of Shelter Veterinarians Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters document. I had the opportunity to speak with two vets about these guidelines, but I always want to make sure we don't get too lost in the weeds in these things. So Liz's piece does a great job doing a deeper dive into more detail on the changes. But here's my conversation now with Dr. Lena Datar and Dr. Aaron Katribe. If we could start by just each of you introducing yourselves, that would be great. How about uh, you first, Dr. Dattar, and then you, Dr. Aaron? Uh, sure. Yeah. Hi, I'm Lena Dattar. I am the interim director of Maddie's Shelter Medicine Program at Cornell University, and I am a specialist in both shelter medicine and preventive medicine. And I am Dr. Aaron Katribe. I am medical director for Best Friends Animal Society. So we're here to talk about the guidelines for standards of care put out by the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, but I'm not sure if everyone will be familiar with the actual association, so let's do that. 
what is the ASV? Who is the ASV? Why is the ASV? <laughs> All that good stuff. So uh, we've been around since 2001, and we are the organizing body for shelter veterinarians, so veterinarians who in some capacity or another work with animal shelters. And we were founded to help advance the science of taking care of animals in animal shelters, but also as a way for veterinarians who work for shelters to compare notes, to network, to feel supported. And that's been one of our main functions. And honestly, something that we really hope that these guidelines help with as well, ever since we were created in 2001. Turning to the guidelines now, again, they're not new. We're talking about updates to these guidelines, but folks may not be aware of them. So what are the Association of Shelter Veterinarian Guidelines for Standards of Care? Yeah. So the Association of Shelter Veterinarians in 2019 put together a task force of 19 shelter veterinarians who are members of the ASV, but not necessarily on the board of directors. And they were selected for their expertise, the depth of that, but also for their breadth of experience. And so we have veterinarians on there who don't have extra education. They just did their DVM and that was it. And they ended up working in a shelter and they work in a shelter still. And that is their job every day. And they were gracious enough to take time to help us with these guidelines. And then we've got people who are boarded specialists in their area of interest, such as surgery and behavior. And then we picked people based also on where they live and what their experience in animal sheltering has been, whether they are academics or whether they're in the field. We tried to really get a wide representation. As you know, these last couple of years have not been normal. Um, and so that has also contributed to the guidelines and how we wrote them. Uh, we ended up, instead of having a bunch of in-person meetings, doing everything over Zoom. And that was good and bad. So I think that we ended up being able to meet more often, perhaps because of that. But it also meant that we never were really able to have the side chit chat that I think can be so important in these types of projects. We started with a literature search. So each one of these sections is based, except for two of them, on sections in the previous version of the guidelines. And I will say that that previous version of the guidelines was a fundamental part of this process. So we took each one of the key statements from that previous document and went over them very carefully. All of the references went over those very carefully and then went and looked in the literature that has been published between 2010 and now and made sure that everything that we were saying had been updated with more current, more recent references. There's been a lot of research between 2010 and now, and a lot of research between 2008 when those guidelines were first conceived and 2019, 2020, when we were doing that literature search. Well, I'm in awe of this. Lena, I got to tell you, you know, one of my previous roles here at Best Friends was working on policy and position statements. So, you know, as you're explaining how you brought everyone together, I do have a little bit of experience of what it's like to gather stakeholders to try build consensus around issues that sometimes can be contentious. And what I did wasn't even close to what these guidelines are. So <laughs> I do have an idea of how challenging this must have been. And whether it's in the same room or virtually, even if you all agree, it's still not easy to get to an end product where everyone agrees on language. You know, working from something that already existed, also not necessarily any easier, right? As you're trying to set aside what you believe and what you've been using and, you know, really stepping back and looking at new studies and evidence. So again, looking at this last night, I just felt a lot of awe and 
Uh, it's just really very impressive work. I will say it was a, there was a bit of sausage making. <laughs> I mean, certainly we didn't, we definitely didn't always agree on things and we had a system. So each one of the key statements in the guidelines, and this is the way that the uh, previous version of the guidelines was written as well. And I think it's kind of brilliant because it lets people know what is the most important thing to be paying attention to. So we have a system of each one of these key statements that has a word. It's either unacceptable, must, should, or ideal. And every time throughout the old version of the guidelines and this new version of the guidelines, if you saw one of those words, that was a key statement that you needed to pay attention to. And it tells you the level of concern. And so if you are performing an unacceptable practice, that is a really bad thing that you should stop doing right now. And if you are doing something that we say that you must do, then that's great. If you're not doing it, then you really ought to in order to be able to provide welfare to the animals in your care. And so every single one of those statements in this new document has been voted on in committee and approved. And then those statements, each one of those statements, we have something like 800 statements, was then the scaffold that we use, the outline that we use for writing the text in between. And there are some really important things in the text as well that just... We wanted these statements to be actionable. And so things that are universally true, like preventive medicine is really important in the animal shelter. Nobody's going to disagree with that, but it's not really an actionable statement. You can't check that off, right? To say, yes, I did preventive medicine in the animal shelter. So instead of that, we have a whole bunch of statements that you can literally check off, say, yes, we're doing that. Or yes, that happens here in the shelter. Or no, we're not doing that. And so that is it was a very important thing to us and part of our process in, in considering how all of this, this document was presented. I want to get into some of the details of this, obviously, but before we do, Dr. Aaron, I think it's important that sources, you know, whether it's the news media or guidelines for shelter vets, I think it's becoming harder for people to know who to trust. And I want to reinforce that these guidelines have been created by shelter vets, people who have worked in shelters, who understand the realities of the day-to-day -day experience of handling medical and behavioral needs of pets in shelters. They understand resources. They also understand that not all shelters have the same amount of funding and resources, for example. So, you know, not trying to jam this sort of one-size-fits-all, you know, gold standard, if you don't do this, you're bad kind of idea. It's not like that at all. And so for shelter vets and leaders who are concerned about the source of these guidelines, can mm -hmm. I trust them? Should I trust them? You know, endorsements, not something we often give out at Best Friends. But Dr. Aaron, I just want people to understand that these guidelines really are legitimate. That is absolutely true, John. And, and Best Friends did go so far as to officially endorse these guidelines. It is something that we support. I think, you know, just as you said, the, the diversity of experience and the expertise that went into these is huge. And they're practical because these are veterinarians that are working in shelters. And that was such a key component of this was making uh, a document that was, you know, practical and, and could be used in shelters. And that's exactly what it is. And it's also not just for veterinarians, right? Like it, it is for shelter directors, shelter staff to use and to reference. Uh, and, it, and it's written with that in mind. You know, we recognize not all shelters have a veterinarian on staff or have a veterinarian that's guiding some of those decisions. And so it's meant for anyone and everyone in a shelter. And, and I think that is so important and, and makes it so very relevant to, to the work that we're all doing. 
Dr. Dattar, our podcast listeners, it's a diverse bunch. We've got vets, we've got shelter directors, we've got people who work in just about every facet of animal sheltering and animal rescue. And we also have folks who are just getting started, board members, volunteers, people who are just interested in the work, right? So for people who haven't experienced life as a veterinarian in an animal shelter, particularly, you know, a, a bigger high intake volume shelter, under resource shelters, I've heard sometimes vets refer to it as it being like in a war zone. You know, it's really chaotic, uh, a mash type situation where you've got an, this high influx of animals all the time. It doesn't really stop such a wide variance of needs. Maybe not what you'd see in a private veterinary office. But again, I think just important for people to understand why we need specific guidelines for shelter veterinary practices. Well, I think that every shelter experiences that mindset at some point in time. But my sincere hope is that isn't every day. And that really depends on the resources that there are in your community. But to, to answer your, your question about the role of the veterinarian in animal shelters and how, what, how that's different from private practice. So everything in the shelter that happens to an animal, whether it's what they receive at intake, whether it's where they're housed in the shelter, whether it's what you're cleaning with, whether it's how many times they get to go outside on potty breaks, all of that impacts their health and their well-being. And while that it may not seem that that is the interest of a veterinarian, in shelters, it actually ends up being the interest of a veterinarian because when you set a protocol or a procedure for that type of activity, it affects every animal that comes through and receives that, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's dewormer, whether it's a particular style of housing. And our job as veterinarians is to support the health of these animals, whether they are currently well or whether they are currently ill. And so then, of course, the secondary job of the veterinarian, in addition to that wellness and that preventive medicine mentality, is to treat the diseases and the injuries and things like that that the animals come in with. And then, of course, one of the main things that shelter veterinarians are hired for in the animal shelter is to do spay and neuter because almost every shelter uh, is not allowed to re release animals through adoption or to return to field projects or even sometimes to transport without those animals being sterilized. That is a really important thing that we do for the community because that really affects um, the population of animals in the community, how easy or hard it is to take care of those animals, but also affects those animals coming into the shelter on the other side. And so the more we can provide spay and neuter services and wellness and preventive services for the animals coming into our animal shelter, keeping them healthy, the faster they can leave, the more animals we can help on the, on the front side. So it is, it is this huge ball of wax. Um, sometimes that battlefield mentality is absolutely what's happening. And that happens when we have large unprecedented intakes or when the community is severely under-resourced and we are trying to stop the bleeding metaphorically in terms of animal health and wellness in that community. So veterinary deserts, places like uh, certainly the south of this country, and I know that Dr. Katribe has experience working in these places, the shelter is sometimes the only medical resource for that community. And so we try to wear all the hats. We try to do all the things. And that's where we get in trouble sometimes because every shelter, every person, every community has a capacity for what they have in terms of resources to provide to the animals. You don't have the ability to help everybody all the time. And so one of the things that this document talks about a lot and kind of harps on is the idea of setting limits because we will always feel bad when we can't help somebody. But if we have a limit on who we decide that we can help and we can feel really good about those and succeed for those that we can help, then that helps us 
as veterinarians and as the community to feel like we're actually doing good. Well, let's talk about the guidelines then. So I don't know if this is the right term and I mean it in the best possible way, but as I was going through the document, this word modern kept popping into my head. Uh, and, and this is just me, by the way, like I'm, I'm not a vet. I, it's just John Dunn. Uh, but as I read them, I was catching myself kind of almost fist pumping, like, yeah, that, man, I'm so glad that's in there, you know, or yes, like what a great way to explain that you pretty quickly get a sense that these are just really solid evidence-based guidelines and that the association really understands and appreciates the situation the industry is in right now, right? The myriad ways, social, cultural, the shifts to community-based life-saving, all of that really seems to be reflected throughout really thoughtfully. Yeah, thank you very much. We tried hard to do that. There were definitely some of those things that we argued about back and forth, how much to include, how little to include. And we had to set our own limits. We had to set our own capacity and scope so that we could actually finish the document. And so there are limits on what we say. For example, uh, we don't go into how to take care of livestock or how to take care of exotic animals that in some places make up 10 to 15, sometimes 20% of shelter intakes. But many of the principles that we say for dogs and cats do apply to those species. So don't have more than you can take care of. Make sure you have adequate housing that supports their welfare. And I think one of the fun things that we've done to modernize this document is to go from the animal welfare framework of the five freedoms, which basically say you have to have uh, freedom from these, these things that we don't want them to experience, such as hunger and thirst and distress. And then instead pivoting to identifying these core needs, such as nutrition, environment, opportunity or behavior, and how all of those feed into their mental welfare, which then helps sort of gives them this global welfare status. And those five domains is that update to those five freedoms. We, the reason we think that's so important is because, first off, you can have a deficiency in one of those freedoms and still have everything else supported and taken care of and have adequate welfare. So for example, I can restrict the movement of an animal who has a pelvic fracture. They're not allowed to go outside. They're not allowed to go on a walk. They have to stay where they are in their little cage. And that's pretty restricting. But if I provide enough nutrition, if I provide enough pain medication, if I provide enough enrichment for them in that situation for that temporary time, I can ensure that they have a good quality of life as best as I can. And so their welfare will be adequate until they heal and then I can let them out of that cage and then they can have much better welfare. And so that the five domains allow for the interaction between these five systems to give you this sort of global animal welfare rating. But the other thing that the domains do that the freedoms don't is allow you to have good nutrition instead of just adequate nutrition or good hydration instead of just meeting hydration. And so we know that there are ways to make sure that animals are not in distress, but does that mean that they're happy? Well, we want them to be happy. We want shelters to go above and beyond not distress and to get into that, get happy, get into that good welfare, get into that very excited, really thriving type of situation. And we know that shelters can do that a lot of times. And so this is that challenge then that we have presented them because we think it's time. Well, I try very hard on the Best Friends podcast to keep things interesting. And whether it's data or reviewing a big document like this, I think going through section by section might not be the most interesting, but I think it is important to hit some of these sections. So I do have some questions pulled together that touch on several areas of the guidelines. So if you're okay with that, I think maybe we just bounce around and we'll see how we do. Yeah. One of those areas I think is going to be very helpful for people is section number two on population management, right? managed intake, coordinated entry, whatever you're, you prefer to call it, a huge piece of keeping shelter populations healthy, also a very key life-saving program. 
right? So really understanding what is the capacity for care. You've got a section on outcome planning. Again, another fist pump moment in this section. You briefly touch on transport programs as a viable life-saving approach, but also very clear it's not intended to be a replacement for actually working to improve those positive outcomes in the local community, right? So yeah, again, I think uh, that population management section, just really smart. Yeah, thank you. And we also have, of course, the whole section on transport, which is sort of more of the how and the nitty gritty and how we can do that in a way that is less impactful on the animals themselves. But anytime that you transport an animal, there is a significant impact on their welfare. Of course, communities who have animals Often there are homes for them. We just aren't very good at finding them necessarily. Um, we have animals that we traditionally consider sort of trouble animals, problem animals. And so I'm, I'm thinking specifically of those larger dogs, especially the ones that look kind of like pit bulls. And I say this as a pit bull owner, they, they can be challenging and a little bit bouncy and crazy. And sometimes that's really hard to find a home for amongst a particular sort of mindset of pet owner. But the reason that there are so many of them is because they are ubiquitous. There are people in the communities that who have these dogs who are breeding them and that breeding may or may not be intentional, but they have these dogs because they want to have them. And so we hope that this document will help people understand the importance of trying to find those local outcomes, even if they're not the people that tend to come to your shelter looking for animals, that maybe there are solutions in your community where you can go out and ad advertise these animals to other neighborhood pockets, for example, or other parts of that community. The other challenge, of course, is the length of stay. And that is, I think, one of the things that we harp on throughout the entire document. There's an abbreviation for it. It's LOS. And there is a, a list in the back of all of the abbreviations and also glossary terms. And those, those glossary terms have been cross-referenced with shelter animals count glossary terms as well. So we're all speaking the same language, hopefully. But having that transport option can significantly reduce the length of stay of animals in animal shelters. And so it may not even be the volume of animals that you're transporting out, but simply just the speed at which you're able to do that sometimes that can help. When I, when I think about transport, I try to think of it as truly a temporary solution. It's the Band-Aid. It is a Band-Aid. That, that gives shelters the time and the space to design and implement those more long-term sustainable programs, things like local adoptions, community cat programs, uh, and, and really focus on that. But it, it gets those animals out fast, to your point, Lena, and, and lets us breathe <laughs> so we can really think about what that local programming looks like. And, and I think it's relevant now more than ever when, when there are so many shelters that are functioning at or over capacity and, and simply feel overwhelmed. And, and we're seeing transport decrease now too, which is unfortunate because then it's, it, you know, becomes this really challenging, vicious cycle where shelters are just overwhelmed. And that gets back to, I think, this population management and this idea of capacity for care. And I think one of my favorite things about the guidelines and, and something I think that shelters struggle with, many, many of the shelters that I'm working with, is this idea that perhaps shelter intake is, for all animals, is not the best option, um, even though that's how shelters have functioned for, for decades, and really reexamining that as a practice and, and limiting intake to, to something that matches the, what we have outcomes for and realizing there are sometimes alternatives for animals rather than coming into the shelter and that shelters should be able to, to limit their intake based on what their actual capacity to care for those pets is, because it's not only better 
for for those pets, it's it's better for the shelter staff and for the entire community. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That is one of our scope challenges as well in this document. The way that shelters are now intersecting with communities is really it's really exciting. There's a lot of extra programs that people are doing that uh, I, I would call community services rather than uh, like sort of the sheltering aspect, and that is something that can significantly decrease the intake of animals into shelters. We think we seem it seems to be the case. We need more research on that. But um, at one of the key concerns, of course, when offering these community programs, is that personnel capacity. And so, in order to really effectively implement these programs where you're diverting intake of animals into your shelter. Maybe you're running a home-to-home rehoming service. Maybe you are providing a pet food bank. Maybe you're providing medical care to own animals at the shelter and then returning those animals to the low-income owners who wouldn't be able to afford those services, but really love their animal and really value that relationship. These are really great programs. We didn't get to talk about them that much in this document because we really wanted to focus on the care of animals as they were being taken care of in animal shelters. And we love those programs and we really encourage shelters to do them, but you do have to have enough people and staff to be able to staff those programs so that you're not taking away personnel time that is sorely needed for managing those animals in your shelter. And so that's yet more about limit. We had to limit our document and we're asking people to limit their services based on what they're able to do. And I wish we had a little bit more information on, and then probably depends on the community and exactly what's going on, but on where those key services are for reducing that intake. Like what are the things that really, really matter? And we know that transport is one of them. Transport really, really matters in terms of being able to free up your capacity, both housing capacity, personnel capacity, medical capacity, resource capacity, all of that stuff. Transport is super critical for challenge shelters. I think you both have a special interest in infectious disease management, if I'm not mistaken. This is just anecdotal for sure. And I don't know what uh, there is out there right now in terms of verified data, but it does seem like there are more infectious disease outbreaks happening right now. Again, without hard data, I I can't always tell the difference between, you know, what's an uptick, what we're just paying more attention to, you know, is it just that news articles are hitting my Google alerts? But it does seem like this is a bigger issue than it's been in in maybe recent history. I think... Uh, In my experience, it does certainly seem like we are experiencing more outbreaks. And for those programs that that do infectious disease consulting, there are upticks in, yeah, yep, Lena is one of them. I myself am. Many of the academic programs, we are doing more of them. Uh, It it could raise the question, are there more happening or more shelters just asking for help in order to increase life outcomes during outbreaks, right? And there's not a central repository for this data like transport. It would be great if we had that, uh, but but unfortunately we don't. How, however, given the current state of many animal shelters functioning at or over capacity, we know one of the biggest risk factors in disease in, in shelters is overcrowding and, and length of stay. And, and that is exactly what's happening is these shelters are functioning out of overcapacity and are overwhelmed. And so it's no surprise that we're seeing more infectious disease and that infectious disease is affecting more of the animals in the population. And there are more animals in that population to, to become affected. 
what also happens is then that infectious disease can then limit transfer outcomes because receiving partners are reluctant to take those animals if there's a risk of infectious disease. And, and so then the shelter becomes even more crowded as they, as they try to address the crisis. And, and so then, again, we're, we're stuck in this sort of vicious cycle and of, of things worsening. And so um, that is definitely the experience, I think, of a lot of shelters um, across the country, but particularly in the South where we have more shelters that are, that are challenged, it seems. Yeah, I would 100% agree that I wish that we had more data about it, but anecdotally and certainly from my experience, it really feels like um, there is a lot more, especially distemper virus in dogs that is cropping up across the country. And then we are also seeing some influenza in certain areas, maybe not quite as much as distemper. Distemper is really challenging. I think it is a marker of communities that don't have resources to access veterinary care. And when source shelters, shelters that send animals out on transport, are affected by distemper dogs coming in from the community, they often don't know that they have it. They don't know that they've been exposed. They send them up north usually on transport. And then those communities all of a sudden for the first time in their ever lives are dealing with a dog that has distemper. Some of the challenges may also be a pressure on shelters to not to euthanize for infectious diseases that people would like to be able to treat. And distemper is a really challenging one because there is a very wide range of symptoms that animals have. And it can be anything from like a little cough. It's a really cute little cough. That's it. To an animal that's having full-blown myoclonus and, and seizures and, and actively dying. And so it, the, the range of what that looks like in a dog, the difficulty of testing, the expense of testing, and just the community as like having endemic levels of distemper virus in that really contributes to this challenge. And I don't think the pandemic did us any favors in terms of wellness in communities. And so then the question is, what is the responsibility of the animal shelter? What does the community need? And so in the guidelines, you will see in the very first chapter, which is the very that has the lovely, really intriguing name of management and record keeping, you will see a whole bunch on community engagement. And that is a super important part of animal sheltering, we believe, because number one, there's a lot of organizations around that can share the burden of all of these different tasks that we have to support animal welfare in our communities. But number two, really to understand what the needs of the community are. And if the needs of the community are, we have all these animals coming in with a disease that is vaccine preventable, if we could just get to those animals before they get exposed, then maybe one of the jobs of the shelter is to provide vaccine clinics at free or low cost to their communities, which will then save thousands of dollars for that shelter so they don't have to manage these outbreaks. That's a great point about vaccinations. So just jumping to some other sections of the guidelines, animal care, animal handling, two pretty big sections. Any notable changes or specific things in there that you'd want to mention? So animal handling is our third section. And I think my, I, I would say that not a whole lot has particularly changed, except for perhaps some of our recommendations on handling equipment. And we have a handy dandy table that we um, included in here for the humane equipment that we think you can use by species. And again, this is just dogs and cats, but uh, certainly there are a lot of things that are exactly the same as the previous document. And those include things like using control poles or rabies poles on cats, which is an absolute no-no. And certainly the um, unacceptability of using punishment, forceful punishment or, or um, inhumane handling 
of animals. We Handling is so important for setting animals up for success. What about sanitation? 10 years since these were initially written, which, you know, it's really not that long in terms of time, blink of an eye, at least that's how I feel the older I get anyway. But 10 years, it feels like we know so much more now than we did a decade ago. And you touched on it earlier, uh, Lena, as to how much we've all experienced just the last three years as an industry, as a society, as individual people. It's been a hell of a three years. Have there been any updates to the sanitation and cleaning section? You know, it's such a crucial part of keeping the population of animals in care healthy and disease free. You know, have we learned how to do that better? Yeah, so um, certainly everybody now has experience with fomites. So we talked a lot about that with uh, during COVID, right? Like this was the idea of maybe you would spray your groceries off when you took them home, or you would wear gloves when you went out to prevent yourself from touching anything that might be covered in COVID germs. And I think there's a lot more awareness of pathogens in our environment. And then also, you know, obviously one of the things that is really important in terms of sanitation is to protect animal health through preventive measures, because an animal that doesn't get a disease is not shedding disease everywhere. So um, it is really like, it's all, it's all related. Probably the thing that got updated the most in this section was talking about spot cleaning. There's a little bit of spot cleaning in the previous document. We emphasize it a lot more in this document. And this is the idea that uh, if an animal is staying in their enclosure, whatever that enclosure looks like, maybe it's your living room, maybe it's your bathroom, maybe it's a, a kennel at the shelter, maybe it's a, a you know, an office foster and they, ha- they live in the office all the time, um, that you wouldn't need to completely 100% disinfect that area every single day because that isn't an expectation for their normal life anyway. They're living in their own terms and that's totally fine. Obviously, you want to clean so that is removing all of the organic material, anything that's untidy, you want to scoop the litter box, you want to t- get rid of the pee pads, you want to do whatever you need to do to make sure that everything is tidy and neat for them and it smells good and it looks nice, but that you don't need to go overboard. And the nice thing about spot cleaning uh, that is, is just really great is, well, two things. One is that it saves you a lot of time. You aren't spending the personnel time to completely disinfect that space every single day. And number two, it's really great for the animal because they're not stressed out during that cleaning process. So during deep cleaning, you need to remove that animal from the enclosure. And a lot of animals, if you aren't using that as an opportunity for enrichment, which we obviously recommend, are just stuck in a tiny little crate for the time that that kennel is being cleaned or that cage is being cleaned. And that's not great welfare for them. They don't like it. They don't like being handled. You, uh, as a animal care attendant are probably getting covered in that animal's fomites if you are handling them to shove them into a kennel. And so just overall, it's it's a great time saver. One of the things that makes this much easier is to have a multi-compartment kennel. So that's either a portalized kennel or a kennel that has a guillotine door. You can have, when I say multi-compartment, the reason I say multi-compartment and not two-compartment is because sometimes there's three, sometimes there's four compartments. I encourage as many as you want um, in terms of those compartments. And then uh, you wouldn't even have to handle that animal during that cleaning process. So they're on one side when you're cleaning the opposite side, and then you switch over. It also saves a lot of product, which saves the shelter money. And so it's just like there's, it's just win, win, win. There are times when that's not appropriate. If you have a litter of puppies and they have poop painted their entire room, and I'm sure that all of you are who have any, spent any time in shelters are familiar with that, that kennel cannot just be spot cleaned. That one has to be deep cleaned, disinfected. And unfortunately, that's probably what's going to happen the next day and the next day, because that's what puppies do. Boy, how glad am I that I have the opportunity to do this job and not cleaning up puppy poop paint. (laughs) Uh, Also, very thankful for everyone out there who does that. Thank you so much. 
Dr. Aaron, you do a lot of work with shelters and rescues across the country, so you know as much as anyone what the situation is like in clinics, at facilities all over the place. What bits of these guidelines, you know, and the updates are you particularly happy to see that you think are really going to help practitioners out there? All of them. Um, <laughs> if I have to pick and choose, I think the the ones that I reference the most, uh, I think we've we've touched on population management and capacity for care, uh, things like length of stay. I think those are the sections that I make my most recommendations around because they are so important and having this document to reference, I think is really helpful. And again, it is so actionable and practical and, and giving shelters the tools, things like how to do outcome planning, how to, you know, pay attention to length of stay and shorten length of stay for individuals as well as across the population, how to do daily population rounds and, and all the benefits of that. Those are some of my favorites. Uh, I think the other piece of it that I reference a lot is around humane housing. So Lena touched on the benefits of double compartment housing, but the guidelines go into a lot of detail on how we can, again, not just provide for the basic needs, but actually promote positive states for animals and shelters. And, and humane housing is such an important part of that. And that is really challenging for shelters, again, that are at or over capacity. That, I think, brings me to what we keep coming across in this conversation is how interlinked everything is, right? Population management is related to housing, is related to capacity for care, is related to disease. And that is the reality in animal shelters. Like we talked about in the in the very beginning, the shelter veterinarian's role is, is in all of that and how interlinked everything is. So yeah, I mean, I think those are the ones that I probably reference the most. Uh, and then lastly, it's, uh, it's preventive care. So it's vaccination and really what vaccinations are appropriate uh, and and what schedule shelters should be using because that is different than than private practice and and I still do run across shelters that uh, are are not familiar with with those shelter guidelines and what we actually recommend for animals and shelters because as we as we keep going back to it's a really high risk situation for uh, for infectious disease. What's the feedback been on this? I, you know, because when I do these types of episodes, I, I do research and you know I try to seek out anything that could be seen as like the opposition, right? I want to see what the naysayers have to say. And if it makes sense, I'm going to ask you about it. So I'm looking for other like interest groups and blogs, social media posts, but I got to tell you, I couldn't find anything. I mean, I, it's not that people aren't talking about the guidelines. Of course they are. It's just that it's all positive. People talking about how great they are. So I don't know, maybe I'm just losing my touch at Googling or if we finally found something in animal welfare, we can all agree on. Yeah. yeah. So we actually did a lot of our homework this time. Uh, the, when the first version of the guidelines were published, I think that, um, so shelter vets are very well-meaning. Like we have really the best of intentions. And sometimes we don't necessarily, we're, we sort of say things and then don't sort of always predict how other people are going to take them. And so there was a bit of a backlash first uh, version of the guidelines where people were like, who are you guys to tell us what to do? Like, what do you mean we want you, you have all these opinions about what we should be doing in animal shelters? What gives you, since you're not administrators, you're not managers, you don't, you know, you have just maybe worked in animal shelters for a little while, what gives you the right to say these things to us who have done this for a long time? And then they read them and they understood sort of what our intentions were and, and how that could maybe help them. And the, the folks that were really upset about what we had done ended up writing the introduction, not introduction, the, the, the front bit, the overview to the previous guidelines, actually endorsing them. And so what we did this time in order to sort of maybe um, 
communicate a little bit better was to in ask a lot of industry organizations to look at these guidelines before we publish them to give us their opinion and to let us know how they felt about what was happening. I think that the utility of the first version of the document really helped us. So after that initial backlash, I think people really got on board and the guidelines in the in that original version were super useful for a lot of organizations who were trying to do the best thing for their animals, who uh, wanted to elevate their own practices, who wanted to enact legislation in terms of animal sheltering. And so one of the reasons we didn't change the name of this document is that there are actually laws out there on the books in some states that refer specifically to this document. And so we wanted to make sure that, that this updated version also applied to those, those legislative uh, situations. But so what I have heard now more on the lines of, well, why didn't you include rabbits or why, why didn't I would love to have like a recommendation for how many animals per veterinarian, that sort of thing, or what should, should shelters do about community situations? And we would love to have opinions about those things. We have opinions about those things. We just felt that if we were going to finish the document and be have it to be a length where people could actually manage to read it, that we had to limit our own scope. That's a lot of it. Uh, but I do wanted to, I did want to put out there that the reason for publishing this document is, is not to shame shelters who are struggling to do the things that we are advocating for. We really want people to be able to take this and use this to justify changing what they're doing to align better with industry and community expectations. And so we we don't want this to be a you know a finger wag at people. That is not what this is written for. That is not how we are intending to present this document. It is meant to be a tool that shelters can use to bring to whoever they need to bring it to to help them do the best that they can do for the animals in their care and generally globally to elevate the care of animals in animal shelters. I just realized the time and, and since I have two shelter veterinarians on with me, I want to ask about the veterinarian shortage. The crisis really seems to be impacting just about everyone everywhere at this point. Dr. Aaron, I know you're in California right now. You're there to train folks around high volume spay neuter clinics. One of the ways we can maximize resources right now but is this shortage getting better? You know, is there reason to hope that we can see relief? It's hard to envision a time that we're ever all going to have all the vets that we want. But is there hope on the horizon that we can get what we need? Which I think, sadly, right now, many places really aren't able to even get that. Even for our own personally owned pets and private vets, it's a real challenge right now. I think there's always hope. Uh, and I think there are a lot of organizations and a lot of stakeholders that are putting a lot of thought and effort into addressing this because it is impacting the entire veterinary industry, to your point, John, not just shelters and animal welfare, but particularly in, in animal welfare, there, there's lots of work being done to, to try to address this. You mentioned I'm, I'm right now, you know, teaching a high quality, high volume spay neuter training for veterinarians to be able to increase surgical capacity. And I think a key key component of all of this, and I'll use my the program that, I, that I'm currently doing as an example, but part of the reason that we're in the shortage that we're in is, is because of things like burnout in veterinarians, because of not, not focusing on the well-being of veterinarians and veterinarians working in shelters and, and truly shelter staff as well. And so in this time of a veterinary shortage, it's critical that instead of just saying, gosh, we need to do more, more, more with, with the same number of people or even less, 
It's really about changing the way that we work in order to increase capacity without burning ourselves out. And, and so protecting the well-being of veterinarians and, and staff. And really, I think that that is such a key part of this. Uh, and so while truly addressing the number of veterinarians that are out there in the world or even working in shelters is a, is a much you know, longer term solution, and there is some work to, you know, that's being done to to look at that and to increase numbers of graduates. But that's a that's a long game in in the short term and or the intermediate term. It's it's really figuring out how can we change the way that we work in order to do things more efficiently. And I will say that is something that shelter veterinarians are fantastic at is is problem solving and being able to do more with less, but really maintaining that focus on not burning out ourselves and our staff in in the process. Just to bring that point back to the guidelines, because again, you're, you are shelter vets. You understand that life. You understand what it takes to manage big populations with few resources. You understand what it's like to work in that environment. So these guidelines really are based in that reality. This is an ever changing field, as we've already talked about, even in the last 10 years since these guidelines were originally written. We know a lot more about a lot of things. Dr. Lena, if I can ask you to pull out your crystal ball, look into the future, I don't know, I don't know, maybe it's something like non-surgical sterilization, who knows, but what do you think is coming to the field that really is going to change things for us as an industry again that we might see 10 years from now in the next set of updates? Yeah, I think it's all about community. I think understanding a little bit more market forces of adoption and how we can access markets that we haven't accessed before, what the capacity of communities is to absorb animals. I think that's one of the really interesting aspects that we weren't really able to cover in this guidelines uh, section. And then what is the relationship between all of these community services, these preventive medicine services that we're providing, whether it's animal birth control, whether it's vaccination, whether it's microchipping, whether it's all these things, like what is the relationship with that and animals coming into animal shelters? Like if we can get a little bit of a better handle on what that looks like in different communities, what that looks like in particular communities, how do we prevent animals from needing shelter services and how do we find more spaces for animals to go to and how does that all interplay with the community's resources financially and perhaps for example spay neuter rates those i think are questions that i really have in terms of this sort of thing i think the ins and outs because i think we have a fairly good handle on how to take care of animals once they're in the shelter as long as we aren't taking too many of them in it's just all of that other stuff, that so the sociology, the epidemiology of animal homelessness that I think we, we have a lot more to learn about. What about for you, Aaron? What do you think's coming? I mean, I think the stuff that, that Lena just mentioned is, is, I think, the most important stuff. It's, you know, how what's going on in the community impacts the shelter, how provision of community services impacts shelter intake. I think those are such huge areas of, of active research. Nobody is questioning that community spay neuter is a good thing or that providing services to the community in some way like vaccine clinics are a good thing, but really understanding what that direct relationship is. These are complex things to study, but there are folks out there that are doing it. And so I think that we are beginning to accumulate that data so we can really focus our resources in the most effective ways and, and really target the, the work that we're doing. And so I think I'm, I'm really excited about all of the research that is coming out and we see new publications, you know, all the time. And so I'm excited to see what sections uh, around this community supported sheltering and community services get get added to the next guidelines. Uh, because we, you know, we know that the, the shelter really, in an ideal world, it's it's a resource for the community, right? And, and it's so much more than just a place for animals to go. It is a, a 
a support system for not just the pets, but for the people in those communities. So as we close out here, Dr. Lena Dattar, congrats again on releasing these updates to the guidelines. A mammoth project, no doubt. What are you most proud of? You know, maybe something specific in the guidelines that made it in that that's your fist pump moment. Um, I think it's really the consensus that we managed to achieve. I think that 19, like everybody knows if you've ever worked with more than one veterinarian at a time that you get two veterinarians in the room and you have like four opinions of what's happening. Like it, we are, we are schizophrenic and we never agree with each other. And so 19 veterinarians, hundred percent unanimously endorsing this document, at, like consensus on each one of these actionable statements. That is what I am the most proud of that we managed like myself and the other two editors, Aaron Doyle and Jeanette O'Quinn managed to engineer that or at least convince people that it was important. Like that, I think is the thing that I'm the most proud of. I just want to express my intense gratitude because uh, as, as Lena has said, there is so much work that went into this and it is evident by the document, but it is, it's just so important to our industry. And so I just want to thank you, Lena, and, and to all the authors and especially the editors because of all that went into this. And it is so important for our industry. And again, just has such a huge impact on, on shelters, on shelter pets and, and on shelter staff, you know, to come up with this document, you know, with such consensus and that is so practical and can be used in the day to day work, I think is, is hugely important. And, and it's something that, that will, I have no doubt will continue to impact life saving in such a big way. Don't forget to check out the show notes or bestfriends.org slash podcast. Click on the link for episode number 144. Thank you to Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonch for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.